Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. I started my ultrasound career by accident. I went job hunting for a part-time job to keep me occupied until my son's first grade class would let out for the summer. Because I had nursing and secretarial background, I started my hunt at the University of Colorado Medical School in Denver. I was offered the job as a clerk in a new research lab where I would answer phones, schedule and fetch patients, type patient reports and scientific papers, and help in the daily chores of coating Polaroid films, filling oil bottles, stocking supplies, and occasionally to play patient during the testing of new equipment. Our lab was one of only a handful in the world at that time that was involved in exploring the clinical uses of diagnostic ultrasound. This was the era of A-mode and M-mode studies. And I found that the developing new equipment and techniques that were going on the lab related to creating bistable exams. Diagnostic ultrasound and its potential was so fascinating that I wanted to be able to perform the studies too. To that end, I would sneak into the lab after hours trying to teach myself to scan. One evening, Dr. Ken Gottesfeld, our chief OB resident, caught me practicing. There I was with midriff exposed, cross-sectional anatomy book in one hand and a wavering transducer in the other. Instead of reporting me to Dr. Joseph Holmes, our director, he offered to help me learn to scan whenever he was on call. For three months, my private and clandestine training went on until one very busy OB clinic day, two of the ultrasound technicians called in sick. Dr. Gottesfeld announced to the other lab members that I would be helping out and scanning patients for the rest of the day. Among my most treasured memories is that first patient scan to rule out twins. The thrill of imaging them and the 99 Polaroid shots it took to complete the study is indelibly registered in my memory bank. Slowly, I began climbing the ultrasound career. And over the years, that career has provided me the luxury of working with many notable pioneering physicians, inventors, engineers, and fledgling technicians who would one day be called sonographers. My entry into our profession culminated in the opportunity to not only watch the meteoric rise of diagnostic ultrasound to become the indispensable imaging tool that it is today, but to help informing the many and varied roles of the emerging and coveted position of the sonographer. So good. So good. Thank you so much, Maureen. And I have to explain to our (laughs) listeners as to, typically we start off the bat with questions, but we were so touched by reading Maureen's bio that we wanted to share it with everyone, especially when you hear 
She was working with Dr. Gottesfeld of the Gottesfeld Award with the Society of Diagnostic Medical Sonography, as well as uh, I have to do a little bit of explaining to something that Marvine said. Also, when she said filling oil bottles, I'm not sure that all of the people <laughs> listening to this will understand what she was doing was filling bottles with mineral oil because that was the lubricant used for the ultrasound exam. It was not the wonderful ultrasound gel that we all experience today. It was much more messy. And to get to work with Dr. Joseph Holmes, who Joan told us about in her original stories, I just think that's so fascinating. So we're going to backtrack just a little bit now. And Maureen, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood as far as where you grew up? Well, sure. I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. My mother was single and worked as a housemaid. I spent most of my time in the days with my grandmother who also lived in the same apartment house. And she was a fantastic lady who taught me the value of work. She had me dusting and cleaning every little corner when she found I was bored and apt to get in trouble. At any rate, during the summer months, I had a break because I usually was sent to one of my mother's many sisters' homes and enjoyed the company of many, many cousins. So I looked forward to that very much. Like most little girls, I changed my mind many times about what I wanted to be when I grew up. Should I be a singer, an actress, or a nurse? Those were at the top of my list. So what led you with your post-secondary decision-making once you started off that track of considering nursing? Well, as you recall, I said one of my goals was to become a singer. <laughs> I started singing non-professionally, of course, at the age of four. My family would trot me out at every gathering, and I would be there for entertainment. And I kept singing. I went to glee club. I went to choir, anywhere that I could. And in most of the schools that I attended, I was invited to entertain visiting professors or doctors, whatever. So singing has always been integral in my life. Oh, that's fabulous. So at the time that I had to make a decision on what to be, I was a realist because we had grown up on welfare, and I knew the value of financial security. So as much as I'd like to be a singer or an actress, the nurse became the top priority. I left uh, after graduating from high school and went to Phoenix, Arizona, where I entered the Good Samaritan School of Nursing. At the time that I was in the nursing profession, and I loved it, I loved being a student, I loved trying everything that they asked us to do. And at that point, I figured maybe I should try to do some of this singing on the side. I have to admit, I was urged to do that because I was running out of money. Mm -hmm. And so I went to sing in a jazz joint, had to bleach my hair to get the job, <laughs> sang for a week, and I got a call from the nursing director and she said, you cannot do this. You have to come back to school, and don't you ever, ever do this again. Oh, That was the end of my singing career, per se. Yes. <laughs> Much stricter program directors in those oh, days. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. And in those days, uh, the schools uh, didn't allow you to be married when you were in school. Wow. And unfortunately, or fortunately, 
I met a very handsome airman stationed at a local air base and we fell in love. And he was about to be discharged from the service and wanted to go back to his hometown. So I had to make another big decision. I couldn't stay at the school. They knew that I was getting married. So I had to go with him to Gallup, New Mexico. And the only jobs I could find there because I didn't have my degree was working as a ward clerk or nurse's aide. So I did that for a while. <laughs> Just one of those forks in the road, you know? I love yeah, hearing these stories. Absolutely. It's just the weirdest little thing that you think is maybe taking you off your track, but it actually puts you right onto another one. Little did I know that my husband was working for Frontier Airlines in uh, Gallup, New Mexico, but he was promoted and transferred to Denver. When we arrived in Denver about a year or so later, I had my son, Greg, and I was a stay-at-home mom taking care of Greg. When he went to school... I was so bored. You can only <laughs> clean a house so many times in a week. So I started thinking of looking for a job. And I thought I should capitalize on my nursing and my secretarial skills. And that found me at the door of the College of Medicine in Denver, Colorado. And that was where in your bio you were scanning and, and had that had that little test. That's right. Scanning. That's right. So, so beyond the, the, that opening story that you told us, can you share with us the further connection between your clinical sonography and any research that you did early in your career? Well, just being in Dr. Holmes' lab, everybody was involved in research of one kind or another. He had four or five different experiments and gimmicks to be tested at a time. That was the lab in which Douglas Howery had figured out a way to use a transducer with a patient in a water bath. The water bath happened to be a a B-52 turret from the the gun part of the plane. So upended, it was a nice deep tub. And the transducer was mounted on a mechanical arm and it would just circulate back and forth around the patient. One of my first research duties was to be the patient and a very itchy Navy surplus swimsuit. (laughs) Man, the things that patients complain about nowadays, cold gel and full bladders, getting out of water. (laughs) Yes, they should know. They should know. But anyway, so Dr. Holmes realized this is not a very ideal situation to try to foist off on the clinical people. Yes. So he was working along with uh, our chief tech in the lab, Cliff Williams, fantastic guy, great with any kind of tools and fantastic also in the way that he treated employees and patients. And Cliff was relegated to trying to find a way to make a more minimal or portable scanning tank. And instead of the patient sitting in it, it would be applied to the patient's body through that big, awful mineral oil. So I did that too. Okay. Um, We scanned many, many patients because of our connection in the hospital with Dr. Gottesfeld in obstetrics and also Dr. Horace Thompson, who was an obstetrician and teacher there. And we also had to do many trials to try to see if we could find scanning protocols 
for Dr. Holmes's liver and kidney transplant patients. And this just kept burning me to go further and further. I wanted to always know why. I could never handle not knowing why. So one of the things that we did uh, also, we techs, as we were called then. Wow, yes. We were told by Dr. Holmes that we had to come up with a plan to make a scanning tank for objects that would show us whether or not our transducers were accurately reflecting back spatial information. Wow. And it took a long time. Every Wednesday afternoon at lunch, Dr. Holmes would come in with his brown paper lunch. He would sprawl on the floor, take out his sandwich, be chomping away, and with a myriad of papers spread all around him, he would quiz everybody who had a project. And then if there was a glitch, all of us were invited to say, well, why don't you try this? Or why don't you try that? So that was was my training. That was my beginning to understanding ultrasound. And it was a fantastic experience. I have to say, though, the work with Dr. Gottesfeld in the maternal and infant clinic made me fall in love with ultrasound of the obstetrical patient the most. So while I did everything else, my love just turned to OB. I got to tell you a little story about how I even how I first heard your name before Joan Baker told me her story, which of course you were mentioned in, in many times. But I early in my career noticed that I was having a lot of my patients tell me, you know, how good they have experience they have with the ultrasound, you know, with our experience together that we had. And I really fell in love with like the patient care aspect and was like, I am so fascinated about how that moment that you're with that, that pregnant woman and, and with their anxiety, their fear, their, all their hopes and dreams and all those little things. And it's such a clinical sort of job, but sitting next to like one of the biggest life experiences that anybody will ever have. And I started to research, well, how, what, what do people research on patient care? I feel like I want to write a book about like how to care for the obstetrical patient. And then sure enough, the only book I found on it was from Marveen Craig. And so I bought it off of Amazon and I still have it upstairs. And I have gone through and made notes of like, yes, this needs to be looked at. And it's so funny because so much stuff has changed about today's patient from the patient that you talked about in your book. But the experience of hasn't changed. The way people are looking at the experience has changed and, and the people have changed their attitudes towards things. And like you said, not, not getting stuck in a big vat of water and understanding that at that point they would do anything that we'd ask for them to do to give them information on their health and, and their baby and people being like just irritated that we have to even press on their abdomen to look at their baby today can be you know, so just so many things. And that's how I began to know about you. You were the pioneer on patient care. And I just think it's great because I think that that experience, it needs to be looked at more. And I think the sonographer needs to be able to see it from the maternal side and that the mom needs to be able to see it from the sonographer side and what we're trying to do. And that understanding can make a relationship that's awesome. I think I have to adopt you. <laughs> Maybe because you, you put everything that I believed in so well and so succinctly, which I'm not famous for, by the way. And, and I would only add to it that not only was it an important event for that patient, to me, 
it was almost mystical to realize that I was the first person to see this new being before the doctor, before the parents, before the grandparents, before anybody. And I took it as a real responsibility. And I treasured every single one, no matter whether they were good patients or unhappy patients or tough patients. And I think that that is probably the best thing that ultrasound gave to me, that privilege. That absolutely, the gratitude and feeling blessed for those times, just as much as the patient should feel blessed to just have the experience that they're having at that moment, I think is something that people can learn from you. When students are listening to this in school and, and their attitudes going into their practice, remembering it from the other point of view that they're making memories every single time they walk in that room. They're making memories for themselves and they're making memories for the patient. And I think that's so important. And I hope that people can take that away from your story. And from what you just said, because as a student, think back to yourself at the very beginning of that. There is so much coming at you, information, almost like standing in front of a fire hydrant and it's just spilling all over you and, and you're worried that I'm not going to get all of this. How can I master this? So the last thing they're thinking about is the patient, unfortunately, but that's human nature. So I would say that to all of my students, if you want to be a diagnostic medical sonographer, there are a few things you have to have in your arsenal. Your ability not only to make images, your ability to care for your patients while they're in your care. And most important, the ability to plug into deductive reasoning. Don't do things by rote. Well, this is the setting I used last time. Or I don't care what it says, it's light enough or dark enough. None of that stuff should go on. You should try to produce magnificent diagnostic images. I always told the students, you better be good because for all you know, your image may go into a medical journal and you want to be on the part that says successful, not unsuccessful. Uh, yeah, I think that connection strengthened when I had kids. Can, can, can you speak to that maternal relationship that you're able to have, whether you're a dad or a mom, once you have a child and then you're in that obstetrical experience. Oh, yes. Abnormal findings, amniocentesis, maternal anxiety, all those things take on like a whole new role for the sonographer and the mom, I think. Well, in, in the lab that I worked in, and there were various over the years, one of the most important pieces of equipment I had was a box of Kleenex, because <laughs> sometimes the results fortunately not often, were not favorable. Mm -hmm. And it would get to be a cry session because I felt so for my patients and seeing their tears, the husband and the wife, which I couldn't stop the waterworks for myself. So we went through a lot of Kleenex over the years. And I think that it's important also to understand that many people have a false impression of ultrasound because they see it in a movie or they see it on TV or it is explained uh, very off the hand, so to speak. And they don't realize how important and how difficult it can be to get the images that you're after. Yeah. I always invited 
family into my scanning room. I know there are many people who don't want to do that because they're under the pressure of delivering seven and 10 minute scans. And that's pretty hard to do when you're trying to help the patient or their loved ones understand. For those kind of people, I just want to relate one incident I had when we had our school of ultrasound. A young lady was sent to establish fetal age Mm -hmm. and with her was her mother and her boyfriend, the alleged father. He was not a happy camper. He said, I'm not gonna stay here and watch this. And he went out into our waiting area where my husband also worked in the school. And he saw him and he came up to him and he said, what's the problem? He said, you're missing out on a wonderful opportunity to see this baby. Why don't you let yourself just go in there? You don't have to say anything or do anything, just watch and listen. So he did come back, still a little bit skeptical and off in the corner. But as we got the Doppler and the baby began to move around and he saw this on our TV, he came closer and closer. In fact, he got so close, he was right up, nose against the screen. He could not believe what he was seeing. We had a good exam. And after the patient was dressed and left, my husband said, you know, I talked to that young man. I hope I helped. He said, and I think I did because when he left, as you were getting the patient dressed, he came out and he came up to me and he said with his chest out a mile, you know, I'm going to marry that woman. (laughs) So you see, having the patient in the room can't always be a drag. It may be an important thing. Absolutely. Being able to see that baby move, you know, creates this ownership and creates this emotional thing right away, you know, even if, regardless of what the outcome is, there is, there is something established there. Well, you know, that's so very true because in the uh, beginning of my obstetrical ultrasound scanning at the university, it was a time in which abortions were not legal in this country. And we had people come from all over the world to Denver to get the established date of the patient so that they could make their final decision. And I think that that kind of stress, not only on the parents, but on the sonographer, means that you have to have empathy, but you have to know when to compartmentalize it. That's a very good word for that. Yeah, absolutely. You could lay a sonographer down on a couch for sure and talk to him for hours about, you know, the emotions that come <laughs> within your within your scans day to day and the stuff that you have to learn to tuck to the side and hold in. And then the time where you can cry with your patient and let it out and be human. And then the time where we have to step back and be more clinical and being able to being able to dance that line is just as important as you said, as a person being able to go and serve a patient, have great patient care to be in obstetrics. Um, is a really good point. Well, when did you get into the teaching part of your career? Well, in a way, from the very beginning, because in our lab, Dr. Holmes had an open door policy. There weren't established schools and things of that nature, not even textbooks yet. And so people would come, doctors and their assistants would come and stay for a week and follow us through the lab. We called them show-and-tell sessions. But in the telling, we were teaching, although we didn't even realize it at that time. I like 
to give information that helps somebody go in the right direction. So I enjoyed the teaching part. Also, because of my job as kind of the gopher, as well as a scanning person in the lab, the doctor would often assign me to the visiting luminaries. And I would take them through the hospital and show them the cafeteria and all those kinds of things and get them ready for any meetings or come back for any classes that the doctors would decide to hold. Sure. So I had the chance to rub shoulders with so many of the pioneers, but not so much in a scientific way as to find out what motivated them to do the things they did. And the one that will never be erased from my memory was Dr. Ian Donald from Scotland. Dr. Donald had worked in the, I guess he was in the Air Force, and he noticed that they used sonar. And he tried to estimate in his mind, if you could do that with objects, why could you do it with the body and look in the body? So he got enough money for a grant and he got a couple of other docs together who were pretty supportive. So he told me, he said, you know, the first time we actually tried it with the equipment that we had developed, I had to go to the grocers and get a steak so we could scan a steak. (laughs) The first phantom material. (laughs) The first phantom material. And he said, and do you know what the biggest question was after I did that? Who gets the steak? (laughs) So, you know, I've had an invaluable education, although it wasn't in a school of learning. Absolutely. But still just as important, right, as as going to a program is um, all these real human experience. like Absolutely. (laughs) So obviously you've had a diverse career spanning four decades now. Educator for a Unirad company, practicing sonographer, program director in San Francisco, and later at Southern Alabama. Can you describe how and when you got involved with those teaching programs specifically? Well, when I went to uh, Unirad, I was given an offer I couldn't refuse. I had recently divorced, and I had a son to raise and no help from his father. So it made the decision very clear. I took the job and didn't even know what the parameters would be of my job. Neither did they. They just said, well, we want you to be director of education. We want you to put on seminars. We want you to help our salespeople. We want you to go along with the salespeople and demonstrate this equipment. And it was there that I met Marty Wilcox, an amazing engineer. And Marty was the one who made probably the most significant breakthrough in developing real time. Sure. So again, I was learning. Wow. And, how, and you were doing this as a single mom at this time, traveling with Unirad? Oh, yes. I had oh, to travel. How did you make all that work? Well, here we go back to singing. Okay. Was, <laughs> it all comes back to the singing. It always comes back to singing. I was active in my church. I belonged to the choir and I made good friends in the choir and they all knew my situation. And uh, when I would come up with, I need to travel, the people in the choir would volunteer to watch my son. Of course, he wasn't a first grader anymore, but he still needed supervision. 
So without the help of those kind individuals and the parish priests encourage them, why don't you take them for it? It's only for two days or three days. So it all worked out. And that was because of the connection formed with them through singing. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And it takes a village and nothing like a village. It certainly does. Fire people to step in. So (laughs) that's awesome. Now, the other jobs that you mentioned. The San Francisco and the Southern Alabama. How about those two? Well, the University of San Francisco came about because at UNIRAT, I met Dr. Louis Bartolucci, an obstetrician who had built his own ultrasound machine. And it was a winner. Uh, Do you remember the name of that? I can't remember because he never uh, used it or tried to use it commercially. Oh, okay. Really? Just in his lab? Okay. Just in the lab. Now, this was before real time. Okay. So this was just by stable. Uh But he wanted me to come to San Francisco. He had a wonderful technician with no medical background that he had trained. And you may know her by her first name, Lou Penrose, who later went on to marry one of the doctors she worked for. So Lou... Uh, helped me get settled in San Francisco. And I worked trying to bring some kind of organization to establishing scanning for people to come in, just as they did at Dr. Holmes, to see how to use ultrasound in obstetrics. And it was at that juncture that a gentleman, Dr. Granville Coggs from the University of San Francisco, came to the lab, just a wonderful gentleman and uh, kind and very soft-spoken. And I would see him occasionally at different meetings. He always brought his camera. He asked permission to come up close and he would take pictures of the slides. He would do everything he could to teach himself as much as he could. Well, he decided and got permission from the chair of radiology, Dr. Alex Margulis, to open up an ultrasound lab. And he asked me to be the person to do that. So that's how I got to UCSF. No singing this time. Well, maybe singing along the way, but it didn't, maybe didn't push you there in that direction. (laughs) But going there and being in, in California was, as you said before, your paths vary. They go maybe twisted rather than straight. Well, this one was, whatever it was, twisted or straight, this was a life changer because I met my husband, Walter Craig, who was a colonel in the Air Force. And my son, of course, was with me. And he's about- How old was your son at this point? At that time when I met him, he was 12. Okay, okay. And um, Walter wanted to get married. And I had had such a very unpleasant divorce that I just said, no, I'll go against every principle I had. I'll live with you, but I don't ever want to get married again. Sure. So this went on for two years. Uh And one of the um, salesmen from a company, I can't even remember which one now, got to be a pretty good friend. And in fact, we double dated with he and his wife. And he said at one of our sessions, you know, I know Walter's asking you to get married and you don't want to, 
Well, I had the same problem with my wife. She didn't want to get married either until I presented a business proposal to her. <laughs> and I said, if you will marry me one year from the date of our wedding and every year at thereafter, you have 30 days to decide whether you want to stay married or leave. No <laughs> questions asked. Well, that sounded like the ticket for me. <laughs> so I finally accepted. You're like, every year I can have an out, you mean, if I want yes. to? Yes. <laughs> so anyway, by the time we got married, my son was 14. Okay. All right. So what led you down to Alabama then from San Francisco? Well, that's all Walter's fault. Okay. <laughs> he was transferred to Biloxi, Mississippi. And so we prepared to follow him. Sure. And I had no idea how I was going to find a job in Biloxi, Mississippi. But several of the sales reps with whom I was good friends did the job searching for me. Sure. And one of them said, it's not Mississippi, but it's across the border in Alabama. And they want to establish a teaching ultrasound lab. So I went over, I met Dr. Peter Dempsey, another fantastic sonographer physician, because he cared as much as for sonography as he did for his physical activities with patients. And that's how I ended up at the University of South Alabama. And we established a training program. It wasn't lengthy. It was only about two weeks in length, but we attracted a lot of people. It meant that I had to drive 65 miles one way to get to work. Oh my goodness. So you had that hour drive. Yes. Yes. And so to take up my time, I started using a dictaphone and I began working on my first book. Nothing like multitasking there. <laughs> well, it's funny because this dictaphone's up by my mouth and a lot of truckers are passing by <laughs> and they thought I was on a CB and they would honk and honk and I would smile. You're like, just doing authorship. Sorry. <laughs> well, then what about the Institute, uh, International Ultrasound Institute in Dallas? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and how you got involved, how that was founded? Well, I was at an AIUM meeting and I was invited to talk about setting up an ultrasound program with Dr. Walter Taylor from Seattle, an obstetrician. Okay. He had been contacted by the Iranian government. They wanted 22 doctors to be trained in ultrasound. Oh, my goodness. And money was no object. Oh, yeah. So Dr. Taylor said, if you would be willing, we could put this school in Dallas, which is more centrally located sure. than where you are and where I am. Sure. And so we talked about it, Walter and I, and we saw so many good things about it that I decided that I should make that jump hmm. and had his back the whole time. He was, he was there for every step. In fact, we went one year without taking a penny from our new developing school, which we called International Ultrasound Institute. That's great. And 
I felt that it was not only financially important, but it was educationally important because at the time there were only two recognized schools, year-long schools on either coast. So I felt that Dallas would be a good place to at least provide basic introductory education into ultrasound with the understanding that the student who left would continue to learn on the job with the help of her physician or supervisor. Sure. So we offered two-week didactic classes followed by two weeks of clinical training. Wow, that's great. And so the other two programs on the other coast were Seattle University, correct? Yes, and in in New York City. Okay, okay. And was that New York York University or what was that? I can't remember. I have to go look that up. This is where my age comes into play. (laughs) Cannot remember. Age comes play either because it's it's. I, I remember, <laughs> I remember the sonographers Shirley Steano, who was with Joan Baker, yes. when they stormed the hallways of the hotel and asked the board members again, please let us start a technicians organization. So I've forgotten the exact name of the school, but. I still remember Shirley. She became a lifelong friend till she expired. Oh my gosh, absolutely. She's been in so many great stories that we've heard from Joan. She was a character. Well, you already gave us a glimmer of your multitasking of dictating while you were driving. (laughs) We know you are a notable author. You have offered more than 70 articles as well as several books and chapters. And so I'm curious as to... What motivated you to take on those ventures beyond your clinical life that you were having as well? Well, I think the prime mover was the attitude of many of the students that came to the school, particularly those from radiology. I told them at our orientations that I respected their profession and that they had obviously studied and learned a great deal. And now... I would ask them only one thing. Would you please be able to put aside your methods of learning that you had in radiology and open the door to a different method of learning? Because many of them told me, this is just not worth it. I have this chart that tells me what amount of radiation I should give for what kind of patient, for what kind of exam. And I said, well, that's not going to work in ultrasound. And the the patients are not cookie cutters. They're individuals. Some are fat, some are skinny, some are dehydrated, some are bloated. You can't use those concepts in ultrasound because this is not ionizing radiation. So most of them were able to make the switch. A few finished the course, but I wasn't sure that they would go back with the idea that this was where deductive reasoning would come in. Yes, yeah. You know, when you're scanning, you don't just scan the organ of interest, you're seeing what's adjacent to it. Sure. And I told them, you're like a medical detective. If you see something that perturbs you or intrigues you because you don't think it should be there, you have the ability without harming that patient to investigate, to look. So if it's an artifact, no problem. But if it turns out to be something clinically significant, 
you can take it to your physician and the patient will have whatever other treatments that they need. What inspired your involvement in the development of the ASS suits, which eventually became the SDMS? Could you tell us a little bit about that early experience? Well, while I was still in Dr. Holmes's lab, one of the salesmen said, you know, they've started an ultrasound organization. I said, well, you know, uh, money's tight. I'm a single mother. I can't be involved at this point. Well, about two years later, I got a call from Joan Baker and she said, Marvin, we would like you to run for president. (laughs) I said, Joan, I don't have the background to be a president. She said, you may not think so, but you won't know until you do it. So with Joan's encouragement, I became a member and went to the meetings. And when it came time to have the elections, I offered my name. And of all the people at the meeting, two didn't vote for me. (laughs) No, I don't remember the other 400 or how many people were. But you'll always remember those two. But you remember those two and you wonder why. But (laughs) they love you. Well, you're so well known for the essentials of the sonography and patient care book and the article, I Am a Sonographer in 1988. While we recognize the technology of ultrasound has evolved tremendously, yet both of these subjects are timeless, what would you advise new emerging sonographers applying the message within those writings to their own careers? Well, I think a sonographer or a would-be sonographer has to have a examination of conscience to begin with. Are you looking for a job or are you looking for a career? And there is a big difference in the way you approach your training. Well, and that leads very much into what I was going to ask you next, as far as what do you project as far as the educational uh, trajectory uh, for the future of sonography? What do you think that might be coming down the pike, so to speak? Well, you're probably asking somebody who's been out of it for so long that I'm not current with what there is out there. But I would say that no matter what the technique, no matter what the new fantabulous equipment they're dealing with, they still have to just do the basics. They have to learn the techniques, the protocols, the equipment, and they have to learn to care for their patients. I I really don't know. I've been off the beaten track for over five years. But like you said, some of those characteristics are timeless. They're going to be, you know, necessary for them to be willing to do more than just push a button, to be get creative, be thinkers, be detectives, and then be able to have that emotional care for your for your patient and investment in what you're doing. If if they can incorporate all of those things, not necessarily to the same degree. But if they can do that, they can be a success. Ultrasound was never a job to me. I would have paid if I'd had the money (laughs) to be an ultrasound. When I got to where I did have the money, nobody wanted me. So they wanted me for lecturing and writing and other things. And so I segued into that next step on my career ladder. And well-deserved. I'm curious, uh, what do you, looking back, Uh, what do you feel is one of your most memorable accomplishment out of all the things that you've shared with us today? Wow, that's um, 50 years (laughs) of being involved in ultrasound. 
I would say I'm so fortunate to have had the opportunity to reach people and share whatever I knew. I really can't break it down into one specific thing. There's too many specific things or patients or students that I've seen over those years. What are you, what do you immerse? I'm just going to guess and say music has to be a part of it, but what do you immerse yourself in personally now that your professional kind of side has been able to be set aside in, in these later years? Funny you should ask. Before I retired, uh, I worked with a traveling ultrasound registry review group, and uh, we would put in some really hard hours because we could only attract students wanting to get registry help on weekends. Mm. So we would have uh, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday half day. We would lecture for eight to 10 hours a day with only stops for a break, bathroom and lunch. And over the years, that took such a toll on my voice that I couldn't sing or do much speaking. I used to have to hold the microphone right up to my lips when I was lecturing the students. So I realized that it was time to close that door on on my career. And one of my biggest disappointments was to go into retirement with all the time in the world and not be able to devote myself to my big love, which was singing. Until I read an article, it was about the actress Julie Andrews. She had the same problem that I have. So I followed her career. I also followed any articles that were mentioned about her because I believe they had her not speak except for only necessary vocal things for a year. And after that year, they did surgery on her vocal cords. So I thought, well, what have I got to lose? I'll try. I'm not going to be a big paid singer, that's for sure. But at least I would have the pleasure of being able to sing again. And so I went to the university here in Arizona, and I spoke with a magnificent doctor, Dr. Black, who trained in Australia to do vocal cord medialization. And she did surgery on me a year and a half ago. And although it may not sound pleasant to your ears now, had she not done that surgery, I couldn't be here with you now. You would never be able to listen to an hour or so of my talking. It was that bad. Oh, my goodness. And she told me, uh, I told her, what about lecturing? She said, well... The problem is that the lower registers of your voice are where the most destruction is, but your singing voice is still viable. So she said, if you really want to become a lecturer again, you can lecture for no more than 40 minutes. You have to take frequent drinks of water and rest your voice as much as possible. Well, I figured at my age, Maybe I should just be happy with singing around the house. That's that was my decision. What lecture for you that you can sing the whole lecture. What about that? <laughs> well, you're not the first person to say that. I, I would love to do it that way. I think that would be not, great. I'm not sure they would be good receivers of that information. <laughs> It's always an idea. We're going to put a pin in it and put it up to the side. Singing, travel, singing, lecture group. 
Well, I'd be willing to try it. All right. All right. It's, I'm glad that you hadn't written off that idea. So that's good. Well, I always have to ask the last question. It's about legacy. What do you hope down the road, how you made an impression on the world? What would you like that to be? Well, I guess my legacy is, it's hard for me to explain because I never considered myself that important. I think that it would be that someone would come along who had the same ideas of teaching, who had the same ideas of caring for patients, and just carry on my work. And many of my former students have done just that in their own cities or towns, in their own way, they have become educators. I read someplace once that the best compliment you can give to your teacher is to surpass him or her. So my legacy would be that statement. There's one more question that needs to be asked. And that is, how do you, the sonographer, care for yourself? Now, I've written about compassion fatigue. I was the first person to write about on-job injury for sonographers. Joan Baker took that and ran, and thank God she did. I am concerned about the well-being of the sonographer as well as the patient, both emotionally as well as physically. And I think we have to incorporate in our classes, in the schools of ultrasound, dedication to those concepts, spending time, role-playing is a wonderful way to get into the emotional aspects of sonography. So I would hope that those questions are tagged on. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's wonderful and great insight. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, first of all. I'm so honored that you asked me to do this. And it was interesting because it brought so many memories along with it as I began to read the questions and consider my answer. I'm kind of like the maverick pioneer, so to speak. I never had any educational training for teaching. I only knew that I would try to teach the way I would want somebody to teach me. And I often told my students who became disappointed with the volume they had to learn, that if you can explain what you just read in your own words, you've got it. You don't have to worry about it. It's up there and you will answer the registry exam questions properly. Marvine, I'd really like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time out to share your story to shed light on what it was like in our occupation before it was an actual occupation. And thank you for holding the standards of being a sonographer to more than just good imaging and knowledge of normal anatomy and pathology, but also to the awareness of the role we play in patient care and how we can impact the lives of our patients and how we can let them positively impact our lives as well. So thank you so much. We wish you the best in everything you do. Thank you to everybody out there for joining us for this episode of the International Sonography Podcast. You can reach us at internationalsonographypodcast at gmail.com with any questions or comments. Also, don't miss next episode, episode 14, where we sit down with Dr. David Abel. Among many of the things that David does, he is the assistant clinical professor and attending perinatologist in the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, Fresno. 
Many of you may have heard David lecture in the past, but don't miss our conversation with him as we talk about everything from his childhood to his practice and the communities that he has served most and what he still hopes to do in the future. Until then, take care.